Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 39. Last week, I wrapped up with Joshua charging the tribes east of the Jordan with what would later become known as the Greatest Commandment, and found in the first part of Joshua Chapter 22. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking it up again in that chapter, and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. After Joshua let the eastern tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh return to their lands, the first thing they did was build a memorial altar on the banks of the Jordan River. This led to a great bit of strife between the eastern and western tribes, and is a story I've previously covered. Just know that by the end of the chapter, they had worked out their differences. Embedded in this story are a couple of people I need to cover. While both have been mentioned before, there was a bunch of other bits of the narrative that were more pressing at the time. And now, especially since everyone is getting settled, it feels like it's their time to take center stage. But not just that. At least from my perspective, I'm relieved to finally be covering something other than obscure places. And in this case, I'm diving into what's known about the high priest Eleazar and his son Phineas. They're both mentioned in Joshua's text, where it reads, The Israelites sent the priest Phineas, the son of Eleazar, to the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, who were now living in the land of Gilead. Accompanying Phineas were ten tribal chiefs, one from each western tribe. So, Phineas is being sent as an envoy, attempting to resolve the conflict. But before I can get to him, I need to cover his father, the high priest. Eleazar was the Israelites' second high priest, taking the reins from his father Aaron after the latter's death. Since he was Aaron's son, this made him Moses' nephew. While the text is silent, he was likely born in Egypt and therefore was with the Israelites throughout the Exodus and into their settling in Canaan. While the Israelites were wondering, mentions of him popped up several times. In Numbers, we're told he created the plating for the altar, with the material sourced from the firepans of Korah's assembly. A few chapters later, he performed the ritual of the red heifer, where a female red cow was slaughtered. After the animal was killed, Eleazar sprinkled some of its blood toward the front of the tabernacle seven times. He then left the camp again and oversaw the burning of the carcass. As the red heifer burned, the priest was commanded to add some cedarwood, hyssop, and scarlet wool to the fire. The ashes of the red heifer were collected and stored in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. Eleazar completed all of this while he was second in command of the priestly activities. But he didn't start out as second and only ascended to this role after the deaths of his older brothers Nadab and Abihu when they failed to follow sacrificial protocol. After this, he and his younger brother Ithamar were placed in charge of the sanctuary. He was married to a daughter of Putile, who bore Phinehas, his successor as high priest. According to the 12th century A.D. French rabbi Rashi, Putile was another name for Moses' father-in-law, meaning that Moses' wife Zipporah was Eliezer's wife's sister, but only if Rashi was correct. 
The Old Testament text doesn't provide any additional information about Putile, as this is the only place in the text the name is found. Then, in Leviticus, Eliezer and his priestly younger brother got in trouble for not following the priestly code. In the tenth chapter, they failed to eat a sin offering inside the tabernacle, which stoked Moses' anger since it was a violation of God's instructions. Fortunately for them, they weren't consumed by fire like their older brothers were when they did what they did. As the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, he was responsible for carrying the oil for the lampstand, the sweet incense, the daily grain offering, and the anointing oil, which seems like a lot. It was likely limited to the portion needed for the next day or few. He would also provide oversight of the carriage of the Ark of the Covenant, table for showbread, the altar, along with the other tabernacle accoutrements. In number 16, a faction of Israelites rebelled against Moses' leadership. Immediately following this, Eliezer would take the rebels' bronze censers, and as a reminder, a censer is a pot-like vessel for burning incense. He would have their censers hammered into a covering for the altar, to forever serve as the reminder of how their rebellion turned out. It was after this that the priesthood was limited to the descendants of Aaron, meaning that, among other things, Eleazar was now seen as the next high priest. Before his father Aaron died, and while they were on Mount Hor, Moses would take the high priest's sacred vestments from Aaron and place them on Eleazar, signaling his ascension to the role. He would hold the position of high priest for at least 20 years, possibly longer. Among the many things he did in this period, he would manage the census for Moses and assist in the coronation of Joshua as Moses' successor. He would also assist Joshua in the allocation of the land to the tribes after they conquered most of Canaan. When he died, he was buried on land given to his son in the new high priest Phineas. This was in the town of Gibea. While there were three places with this name, the one where he was buried was a Levitical city in the hill country of Ephraim. In this town, well, really the modern Awarta, which is thought to be the town, here is what's known as the Hill of Phineas. This hill is found in the Sumerian district of what's today the West Bank. The area is fraught with strife, and while physically located in the nation of Israel, the government has limited visits by practicing Jews pilgrimaging to the site to one day a year. Back in the history, the high priesthood remained in the family of Eleazar until the time of Eli, who was the second-to-last judge, placing it just before the kingdom was united under King Saul. In terms of years, this placed it sometime in the 11th century B.C. This Eli was a descendant of Ithamar, Eleazar's younger brother. After a while, and in this case during the reign of King Solomon, so in the 10th century BC, the high priesthood was restored to the family of Eleazar when the title was placed on Zadok. This was after the then high priest Abiathar was cast out by Solomon and sent packing to his estate in Anatoth, like I mentioned in the last episode. Samaritan writings record that a civil war broke out between the sons of Ithamar and the sons of Phineas. 
a war that resulted in the division of those who followed Eli as the priest and those whose high priest was named Buki. This Buki was based at Mount Gerizim. Do note there was a third group that decided to follow none of the above. This may be the same Buki that was mentioned in the books of First Chronicles and Ezra as the son of the high priest Abishawa. I may cover the little that is known about him when I get to one of those books. Other Samaritan sources record that the high priestly line of the sons of Phineas died out in 1624 AD with the death of the 112th high priest, Shloma ben Phinis. This would mean, with the exception of the short period in the book of Judges, the high priesthood remained in the family of Eliezer for nearly 3,000 years. In 1612, it was in the 17th century that the priesthood was transferred to the sons of Ithamar, where it remains today, bestowed to the Samaritans' 133rd high priest, Asher ben Mazlayak, a line they claim goes all the way back to Aaron. Upon their high priest's death, the title and role automatically transfers to the oldest surviving descendant of Ithamar. Back with Eliezer, there were five other men with the same name mentioned in the Old Testament. One was entrusted as the keeper of the ark. Another was one of David's mighty warriors. The third was among those placed in charge of the sacred vessels when they were brought back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. Another slayed a battle elephant in 1 Maccabees. And the last was a Jewish scribe who met his martyrdom at the wrong end of a sword of Antiochus IV Epiphanes' troops and recorded in 2 Maccabees. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, another Eliezer, the son of Eliad, is listed in the genealogy of Jesus as the great-grandfather of Joseph, husband of Mary. As you would be correct in suspecting, Eliezer is nowhere to be found in the outside record, which means I'm done with him. Next up is his son and successor high priest Phineas. Of course, he was the grandson of Aaron, son of Eliezer, and of course related to both Moses and Miriam. That's a family tree, and likely a lot of pressure, like few in the Bible had seen or were to see. And he was either feeling the pressure early on, or stepped up, or something else entirely, as, as a youth, he distinguished himself at Shatim with his zeal against what's become known as the heresy of Payer. I've mentioned this incident many times, and as a quick reminder, this was when some Israelite men fraternized with Moabite women, and went as far as worshipping their gods, including Baal. This angered God, and he instructed Moses to massacre all Israelite men who had done this. Moses passed on these instructions to the judges of Israel. Phinehas led the charge, spear in hand, impelling an Israelite man and a Moabite woman in a tent, which brought an end to the heresy, but not before some 24,000 were slain. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him that, Phinehas has turned back my wrath from the Israelites with his zeal, acting on my behalf, preventing me from, in my jealousy, killing all the Israelites. God then told Moses, I hereby grant him my covenant of peace, 
It shall be for him and for his descendants after him, a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. And that's how the priesthood came to Phineas and all his oldest sons that followed him. Well, most of them. More on the coming interruption in a minute. The book of Revelation, at least one part of it, contains a reference to this event. In the second chapter, a message is delivered to one of the seven Christian churches. It says, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold on to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Not long after Revelation was written, the first century Jewish Roman historian Josephus wrote that Balaam sent for Balak and the princes of Midian and told them that if they wished to bring evil upon Israel, they would have to make the Israelites sin. Balaam advised that they send the most beautiful women to seduce the Israelites towards idolatry. This strategy succeeded, and soon many of the Israelites had been seduced. As for Phinehas, as part of his priesthood, which was after the Israelites entered Canaan, he would serve at the sanctuary of Bethel. Later, he would lead 12,000 Israelite warriors against the Midianites, a battle thought to be continued payback for the heresy. After defeating the five kings of Midian, the Israelites took their women, children, cattle, flocks, and all their goods as booty. They would also burn their towns and encampments. You may have noticed that they took the women as their own, which is extremely similar to what got them in the mess of heresy to begin with. Moses and Eleazar noticed this too. To me, it's surprising Phineas allowed it to happen, especially considering he was the one who led the spearing that ended the original incident. What happened after Phineas brought all of the prisoners back from their victory is a bit too gory for this podcast but can be found in Numbers 31. Phineas would make another appearance in the book of Joshua, and it's this mention that led me to cover him now. When the tribes of Reuben and Gad, together with the half-tribe of Manasseh, departed to their homes east of the Jordan, and in fulfillment of their promise to Moses, they built a great altar on their side of the river. The western tribes took great offense to this, thinking the eastern tribes were attempting to set up their own holy temple. The westerners would send Phineas, along with representatives from the other tribes, to investigate. He would find that the monument built by the eastern tribes to be of a benign sort. Later, Phineas would not only be the high priest, but also the chief advisor to the Ephraimites in their war with the Benjaminites. This is an incident found in Judges 19-21. through and is sometimes called the Benjaminite War. It relates to a traveling Levite who, along with his concubine, were attacked by a mob of Benjaminites. I'll get to that part of the biblical narrative at some point in the future. There is the belief by some rabbinical commentators that Phineas sinned due to his not availing his servitude of Torah instruction to the masses at the time leading up to a battle in this war that was fought at Gibeah. There's also criticism about his interactions with the judge, Jephthah. In a story I covered a bit back, 
Jephthah vowed to sacrifice whoever emerged from his house first, if God would grant him victory over the Ammonites. His probably adult daughter emerged, and after waiting a period, Jephthah sacrificed her. Phineas is criticized in that he did not relieve Jephthah of his vow. Rabbinical commentators point to this as the reason that the priesthood would leave the line of Eliezer for a short while. Finally, according to 1 Maccabees, he was an ancestor of the priest Matthias ben Johanan, who was the father to several prominent leaders of the Maccabean revolt, including Judas Maccabeus. And that's it for Phineas and for Joshua chapter 22. Chapter 23 begins by telling us that many years had passed. Well, more specifically that, after a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies all around, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. And with this, you'd be correct if you thought that meant his end was near. Just like Moses had done, he knew it was time for one last address to the people. And he echoed Moses though he was a bit more succinct, warning the people not to stray from God and telling him that his blessing would come to an abrupt end if they did. His message continues into chapter 23, where he provided a high-level history of all that had happened to the Israelites since Terah and his son Abraham had lived in the area. And when I say high-level, he managed to condense hundreds of years into less than 400 words with most of his focus on what happened while he was leading them in their conquering of Canaan. Then, it was back to his warnings, where he concentrated on telling the people to forsake any foreign god, because if they didn't, God would turn away from them. The people answered that they most certainly would never do that. Of course, history has proven otherwise. After that, and from the text, Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made statues and ordinances for them at Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak in the sanctuary of the Lord. He then said to all of the people, See, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you if you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away to their inheritances. Before moving on, now's as good of a place as any to cover this oak tree. Its first mention is in relation to Abraham's journey from Haran. The Oak of Morah, sometimes recorded as the Oak of Mamre, was where Abraham set up his first altar to the Lord, at least the first one in Canaan. Also because of Abraham, Mamre is frequently associated with the cave of the patriarchs. The name itself, at least the Mamre name, may have been Amorite after a tribal chieftain who allied with Abraham when he pursued Kedoliomer to rescue his nephew Lot. When Jacob returned from Padanaram, he would bury what are described as strange or foreign gods under the oak. He too would build an altar there. Like I mentioned a few episodes ago, the tree was on the boundary of Manasseh and Ephraim, placing it north of Jerusalem. And the reason I'm covering it today is that it was mentioned in Joshua, 
as where the dying leader set up a large stone after giving his last speech to the Israelites. Modern researchers have identified three potential sites as where the oak may have been. One of these actually had an ancient oak tree that collapsed in 2019. That oak was on the grounds of a Russian Orthodox monastery. Josephus, among others, would record that the oak was about two miles, four kilometers north of the historical Hebron. Herod the Great would build an enclosure around an oak in the same general area, though about a century earlier, which may have influenced Josephus' identification of the site. More on that monument in a minute. Next to the site was a general marketplace and local parlance, sometimes called a bazaar a market that was considered to be one of the three most important in Judea. In later years, meaning during the Roman, then Byzantine eras, there was frequently an interdenominational festival attended by Jews, pagans, and Christians. A festival where they would make sacrifices by burning animals there, with the tree being considered immune to the flames. All of this to the irritation of the first Christian emperor of Rome, Constantine the Great. After his mother-in-law visited and was shocked by what she witnessed, the emperor angrily wrote to Macarius, the bishop of Jerusalem, and all the other bishops in the region, telling them that he had ordered the Roman soldier Achaishish to destroy all pagan idols and punish those holding on to pagan practices. The enclosure was then consecrated in a basilica built, but the Russian Orthodox monastery and basilica are in different places, though the basilica and Herod's monument are at the same place. What all of this means is that the actual place and any native descendant oaks are disputed. No surprise there. As for archaeological excavations at this site, they've uncovered substantial artifacts dating only to the Iron Age, so not old enough for the events of the books of Genesis nor Joshua. There have been a few pottery shards that date to the early Bronze Age, so between about 2600 and 2000 BC. This does overlap with Abraham, who's thought to have lived sometime between the 22nd and 20th centuries BC. These fragments are few, but at least they've been found. What's odd is that nothing, at least so far, has been found from about 2000 to 1200 BC. It's commonly thought that Joshua died around 1245 BC, so about half a century before the beginning of the Iron Age in the region. All of this means there have been no artifacts dating to when Joshua was in the region. Herod would push for a site near Hebron as the place of the oak, in its association with Abraham, with the construction of a monument as part of his regional building spree, and in this case, it was also part of his pushing the memory of Abraham. He would erect another shrine at Abraham's tomb, the Cave of the Patriarchs. You're probably wondering why Herod, of all people, would do this, In his day, both Jews and Idumeans, which Herod was, they both regarded Abraham as their common ancestor. Herod was from an Idumean family that only recently had converted to Judaism. This monument had seven-foot walls that enclosed an area 160 by 215 feet, 
with an ancient well 17 feet deep. For my metric-denominated listeners, the walls were 2 meters thick and enclosed an area 49 by 65 meters, with the well 5 meters deep. This well is often called Abraham's Well. The overall structure was destroyed in 132 AD in what's known as the Par Koba Revolt, a revolt that led to three years of Jewish independence before it was overcome, once again, by the Romans. The monument would be rebuilt by the Roman Emperor Hadrian of Hadrian's Wall fame. The revered tree at this site was destroyed by Christian visitors taking souvenirs, which survived until the 7th century. In that same century, the Constantine Basilica was destroyed during the Persian invasion. The Crusaders would build a replacement church there when they occupied the village. Josephus recorded the tradition that the tree at Mamre was as old as the world itself, which doesn't mean that he believed that, just that some of his era did, which normally would provide me with a good stopping point for this episode. But the book of Joshua only has a few loose items left, so I'll let the text finish the episode. Joshua died at 110 years old. He was buried on his own land at Timnasserah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. The Israelites served the Lord all of his days and all the days of the elders who outlived him. The bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the ground that Jacob bought for 100 pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. The high priest Eleazar died. He was buried at Gibeah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And that's the book of Joshua, which now provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll summarize the book in 30 minutes or less. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.